Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, unsung heroes in American legal history. So Richard, we've talked about doing this episode of the show for for some time, uh, a look back through American legal history at some of the figures that you admire but whom have not received the kind of attention that you think they deserve. And every time that we breach this topic, the first name out of your mouth is Malan Pitney, Supreme Court Justice, actually appointed by a president who would go on to become the Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice, yeah. William Howard Taft. Uh, where does your admiration for Pitney stem from? Well, I mean it stemmed from reading the cases. Let, let me sort of make it very clear that when I talk about underappreciated and unsung heroes, I tend to refer to those people whose world outlook is similar to my own, roughly speaking, classical liberals. And the definition for these purposes of a classical liberal is somebody who recognizes that a federal government has to have taxes without the consent of its citizens, uh, uniformly and individually. And it also has to have an eminent domain power, which means that people could be forced to surrender their property for the public use so long as they receive just compensation. Hardline libertarians find it difficult to accept those things, but the Constitution is not a hardline libertarian doctrine because it has both an eminent domain power and a taxing power skillfully delineated that are built within it. Now, Justice Pitney, my favorite, is the person whom I think sort of best encapsulates the basic understanding of how the Constitution gets put together. Um, and I came to this conclusion because starting from the time when I was in college, that is in 1963 when I was first exposed to constitutional law, I kept asking myself, what was wrong with these guys that are so reviled today? And I couldn't figure it out. And then when I tried to find the most powerful statements of their position, I was immediately led first to an opinion that Pitney wrote in 1915 called um, Coppage v. Kansas. And the gist of that was that the a collective bargaining statute that the state wanted to impose upon its employers was unconstitutional because in a world in which there's no monopoly power, forced association by the state is not allowed and that when you try to justify this on the grounds of inequality of bargaining power, what Pitney said quite rightly is uh, the whole engine of contracts assumes that people have inequality of power, uh, but if the contract works well, both of them are left better off than before and the last thing you want to do is to use equality of outcome or equality of initial position to prevent the creation of what we today call Pareto improvements. That is a situation where both parties are better off and no one is worse off. And he said the mandatory bargaining arrangements actually create this perverse situation in which you're forced to enter into deals with people whom you don't want to enter into deals with. Well, you can't quite do that. Then you're forced to bargain with them. And he said that's inappropriate. But Pitney was never a crazy man. So if that, for example, when it came to public utilities and rate regulation, he regularly voted with the court, which said this is an area in which the model of taking for just compensation is appropriate. And what you have to do is to look to the adequacy of the rates relative to the nature of the risk to see how it goes. Now, his union stuff, which I think is absolutely critical, also manifested itself in another very, very important opinion um, having to do with um, uh, 
inducement to breach of contract, um, it was Hitchman against John L. Lewis, Hitchman Coal Company. And the issue in that particular case was whether or not a union could ask its members uh, to remain on the job without joining the union. And then when – not its members, but the potential members. And then when the union called a strike for all of them to work out at once. Now, if you try to sue individual workers when they walk out, it's just impossible. There's so many of them, it's difficult to find them. And essentially what Pitney said is the tort of inducement of breach of contract, which developed when one opera impresario stole away the leading soprano, Joanna Wagner, from another great impresario back in the 1850s, applies to unions so that you could get what later became called the labor injunction. And this injunction says that if, in fact, these workers have agreed not to be a member while they're working for you, you cannot get from them a promise to join the moment they leave because in the court of equity, and he was an equity master from his days in New Jersey, the promise to join a union should be treated as though you had already joined. In all of these cases, he was lined up against people like Holmes and Brandeis, particularly in the second case. And I'm always impressed about the fact that when you actually put push to shove, it turns out that Pitney's arguments in many ways are more persuasive and more coherent than the others. And you could tell the size of his greatness, I think, by the fact that all throughout the 1920s, when efforts were made to transform the nature of labor law, uh, the number one villain in the piece was, of course, the Yellow Door contract, which was you know, essentially excoriated by everybody. The origin of the term is basically anybody who is a labor worker who agrees to a contract like this is a yellow dog. No courage, no no thing. So it's a kind of an insult. I've used the term so often now that to me it's just a descriptive word. But I think in effect that in terms of understanding the basic relationship between monopoly power and competitive industries, our friend Pitney had the surest grasp of anybody who wrote on the Supreme Court. And his uniform rejection starting in 1930 and then working through the peak of the 1937 New Deal was in fact uh, the beginning of a very bad period in labor relations, which has only gotten worse over the last 80 or so years. So given that track record and given the fact that he's going toe-to-toe with these iconic figures, these names we still Mm. know today, like Brandeis, Mm. And, and Holmes. Mm. To, to what do you attribute the fact that Pitney is essentially a footnote? I mean, somebody who is who's not known certainly by the the broader public. Well, he only served for eleven years or so, which is part of his problem. But also remember, this is a world in which there's winners' history, and it turns out in terms of the vilification quotient, he's basically second on the list. The uh, number one fellow on the list, who is therefore not under undersung but just reviled, is a man named Rufus Peckham who was also a state court judge in New York before he went on the Supreme Court and also a fairly strong intellectual figure. And he wrote Lochner against New York. And he said, in effect, that maximum hour laws were unconstitutional to the extent that they too were an infringement on freedom of contract. Both Pitney and... um, Uh, Peckham believed that safety regulation in the workplace was not an improper topic of government regulation and decided accordingly. Pitney, for example, wrote a very important opinion called New York Central Railroad against White in which what he did was to defend the constitutionality of workmen's compensation laws by talking about the compensation bargain that was embodied in the statute, basic framework which has stood with us today. Pitney was also the most astute writer in the United States Supreme court on water rights because he was a real master of that subject when he sat on the equity courts in 
in, in the state of New Jersey. So, I mean, the guy is really extremely smart, but in virtually every area, sort of weak contract rights. And, you know, when it comes to property rights and water, nobody knows what that means anyhow. Uh, so you get this large government overlay. Uh, those are all the things that essentially became triumphant with the progressive period turned into the New Deal. And all of Pitney's opinions were forgotten. And, you know, a lot of my career writing the classical liberal constitution and so forth, is an effort to say, look, I don't want you to treat these guys as though they're just historical curiosities whom we ought not to forget. I want you to basically believe that their arguments were stronger than the ones which have carried sway uh, today. And as we start to see the breakdown in labor relations taking place, you know, with more strikes, more disagreements, when we see the dangers of forced association in cases like Hobby Lobby, um, it becomes quite clear that the freedom of association position, when it's rejected, creates endless amounts of social toil and conflict of the sort which we can do far better without. And so freedom of contract in the absence of monopoly power is really your most powerful recipe for civic peace as well as for economic advancement. Okay, let's tackle a couple of other figures in, in shorter order than we've uh, dealt with with Pitney, but still figures that I know that you think are important. First, David Josiah Brewer, appointed to the court, Supreme Court by uh, Benjamin Harrison, the Republican parenthetical between Grover Cleveland's two, two terms, and he was on the court from 1889 to 1910. What did he do to merit inclusion on your list? Well, I mean, he's one of these guys who really understood the strength of, of strong property rights. He wrote a famous case involving the Monongahela River and the Canal Company in which he has an extremely accurate account of how it is that you have to value property on when it's taken by the government. And uh, the basic formulation that he gave in a single sentence is that the compensation that has to be provided has to be a full and perfect equivalent of the value of the property that has been taken from you and that you have to take into account all of its attributes when you start to make this equation. Uh, the reason why this is so exceedingly important is that if you have a system of compensation under the eminent domain laws which is partial and incomplete, what happens is the government now may take private property for public use with half compensation. The net effect of this is to embolden the state to take more than it ought because it doesn't have to bear the full consequences of its dislocation. And so recently, for example, when I had to argue or work on a case dealing with debit interchange, uh, the way in which I wanted to put the argument was to rely heavily on Brewer and to explain how it is that his formulations carried over not to the condemnation of physical property only, but also to those cases which involved rate regulation. The other thing is that as a libertarian, um, there were several cases that had to deal with all the racial issues of the particular time. And generally speaking, libertarians do not like caste and they do not like formal race distinctions and they will in general be relatively hostile to these impositions. And of course, the most famous person in this regard is John Marshall Harlan who wrote this stirring dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson which sort of legitimated separate but equal in the United States, warning about how long-term dangerous it would be to create two castes of citizenship. And he was right. Now, Brewer did not vote with the majority in that case. I went back and checked it. He was called away because of the death of his daughter and did not participate in the decision at all, which is a blessing to history. But it's quite clear that his sympathies ran very much in the opposite direction on these things. And so one of the things that I liked about him, in addition to his property decisions, is that when he thought about equal liberty, he thought that it 
covered all people. And I think in general, that's a very welcome development. And it's one which, if it had been adopted, would have spared this nation much of the anguish associated with segregation um, inspired by and organized by the state. And final one of these that we'll get to, Pierce Butler, actually a Democrat appointed by a Republican president, Warren Harding, on the bench from 1922 to 1939. Tell us about Justice Butler. Well, Justice Butler um, was appointed by Harding, who I'm going to say it for the record, is probably the most underrated president in the history of the United States. I mean, there's a man whose cabinet contained Herbert Hoover, then an extremely gifted man. Uh, It contained Charles Evans Hughes, who was an extremely gifted man who later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and Andrew Mellon as Secretary of the Treasury. So this man actually had probably the strongest cabinet of anybody in major officials, and even his Attorney General Harry Doherty uh, was the man who pardoned Eugene Debs, and it was, of course, Woodrow Wilson who managed to put him in jail under all the Espionage Acts before he left office in 1920. So he appointed this guy, and his great strength on the court was he was a tremendous regulatory lawyer. Um, If you read his opinions on how it is that you determine rates in all sorts of complicated cases, he gets it right. So in 1926, he announces a principle of exceedingly great importance that when you calculate rates, you have to have integrity within each calendar year. This may sound like a trivial thing, but if you don't do it, it means that the government can say, you know what, we're not giving you full compensation this year, but next year we'll make it up to you, and next year never comes. And so what happens is the integrity of the rate system depends upon this. And when it turned out that our friend Roosevelt wanted to put in all sorts of gimmicks to get around the limitations on the spending power, uh, it was Justice Butler who wrote a strong opinion saying, no, 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 you can't do that. And then it was one of the most overrated Supreme Court judges, a great state court judge, but an overrated Supreme Court judge, which was Judge Cardozo, who basically undid everything that our friend um, Butler tried to put into place. And so what happens is we now have this huge set of federal powers. Regulatory powers are by and large, not limited by a strong uh, reasonable rate of return requirement, and the taxing and spending powers can be subject to all sorts of funny conditions, which create various kinds of exactions and kinds of dangers, uh, so that the size of government has expanded mightily. Now, I don't want to say that uh, Butler always did everything right. He voted with the uh, nine-member majority in an opinion written by another one of the so-called conservative judges, um, which is Justice Sutherland, is saying that no citizen has the power to challenge federal um, acts on the grounds that it exceeds the government's power to spend money under the powers to tax and to spend. I thought those opinions were terribly wrong, but Butler was one of the people who tried to keep as much of the old guard synthesis in place, and virtually all of that was wiped away in 1937. So my heroes are all today's losers, but I think intellectual winners. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.